0: Thank you very much, it's a pleasure to be here. So um, that's not Essen where I work, that's Frankfurt where we did the prospective randomized study. Why we didn't do it in Essen, because at that time we already worked with point of care for uh, five years and nobody wanted to go back, so we just confirmed the results we had before um, with uh, a study then in, in Frankfurt. Yeah, that is more your area but I didn't come with a helicopter, it was too far. That's a little bit about my history and also my conflicts of interest. So as already mentioned, I worked 28 years at the University Hospital of Essen, was also working in the German Society of uh, Intensive Care Medicine, and was a member of the uh, European Society of uh, uh, Anestheology and also a member of the task force for writing the European guidelines for uh, severe bleeding management. And most interesting or important for the conflict of interest in two years. I'm medical director of TEM International. Uh, maybe even more a conflict for me is uh, what you see on the following uh, slides. So as a European one, we quite often love it if it's a little bit more um, concentrated. Uh, compared to American coffee, huge volume. Maybe uh, the content is, is not so much. And the point is, in Germany in particular, for bleeding management, we quite often work with factor concentrates like fibrinogen concentrate, PCC, and don't like so much fresh frozen plasma. And uh, the other point is, if we want to have our coffee a little bit more sweet, you have two possibilities. You can take some coffee from your neighbor, so his plasma, put it in your plasma, but then you need a lot, or you just use sugar. So that is more effective, and yeah, that's the way we do uh, coagulation management. Of course, we have in principle three different ways you can uh, do your transfusion management or strategy. One, which is I think quite often done, in particular in trauma in the US, is one-to-one-to-one. You don't, Need any lab results. If you start to give red blood cells, you give also fresh frozen plasma and platelets. So you just need to count to three and then you start again. That is uh, simple, which is good, but the question is if that fits really all patients, and I don't think so. You can also use conventional lab results like PT, PTT plated count. Our experience in Europe is that has quite often a long turnaround time, maybe 30 to 60 minutes. I don't know what's the situation here in in Baltimore, Uh, but you cannot wait with your decision such a long time. So therefore, it's not very useful, and that's the reason we started with uh, point-of-care-driven protocols in 1999, and then developed algorithms how we can use these results for early decision-making and a specific therapy. If you want to do a more specific therapy, the main question is why does the patient bleed? Sometimes it's easy. When I look at the left side, I say always, for example here in cardiac surgery, when the blood comes up to the face of the surgeon, it must be a surgical bleeding from a high-pressure area. So here's a hole in the aorta, but we can take the picture, he make a suture, and the problem is solved. So there's no need. For fresh frozen plasma pcc fibrinogen on the right side we call it the blood on floor syndrome here to start a discussion if that's surgical bleeding or coagulopathic bleeding is not very helpful for the patient because usually after five minutes you have a combination of both so here just a good collaboration between surgery and anesthesia is important to solve the problem for the patient what you also have to know is a little bit about pathophysiology because Bleeding in trauma or in the liver transplant or in cardiac surgery has not the same pathophysiology. We will not go into all these details. It's just that is a, 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 a diagram of trauma induced coagulopathy, And nearly every year, you have some additional mechanisms, uh, for example, early platelet dysfunction. We know that if the glycocalyx is damaged, you have a liberation of endogenous uh, heparin. But finally, uh, we can use uh, the results we get in point-of-care testing to guide our therapy. So we can detect if the patient has a hyperfibrolysis, is there a hypocoagulability, so overall clot firmness is reduced. We can see if clot firmness is reduced, is that due to a low fibrinogen or low platelet count? We can see with plated function analysis if the, pa- the platelet doesn't work, Uh, as well, we see if thrombin generation is reduced, and finally, if there are uh, endogenous heparinoids. So with the testing, we can see what is going on, and then we do our therapy specifically. And finally, of course, if you have a trauma and use coagulopathy, it aggravates bleeding, and your circle is going on and on. If you don't, stop it. Uh, at the right uh, point. Coming a little bit back about turnaround times. That's a study published some years ago from uh, a Royal London that's the biggest trauma center in the UK. Um, and what we see here in a big trauma center, they looked at the turnaround time from conventional lab, and that was in mean 78 minutes, and the range from one hour to yeah, nearly two hours. So that, of course, is too long, too long and we cannot wait on these results. That's a second study looking at the same. So that's in Switzerland. We were a little bit surprised that in Switzerland the times were shorter, because we Germans usually say Swiss people are not so quick. Uh, But the point maybe behind is that the first author here, Torsten Haas, he's a German educated in Austria and now working in Switzerland. So the result of this study was what they did is they take the blood sample, send it to the lab, and in the lab, both conventional tests and thromboelastometry have been performed. And you see the turnaround time again for the conventional lab was in mean 53 minutes between 45 and one hour. But the results for thromboelastometry were here available after 23 minutes. And then they did also the test. Directly point of care as we do it in our institution so we have the device on a mobile trolley and we take it with us in the operating theater where it's bleeding it was reduced again by 11 minutes for transportation so within 12 minutes the results were available and i think that is the reason over time you can wait uh, before you do your decision what is the best intervention to stop bleeding how does it work you have a like in a thrombolastography, you have a cup and a pin. Uh, in the cup you have a blood sample. We always use citrated blood, so it's then afterwards uh, activated by recalcification. The difference is that in the tech system, uh, the cup is moving, and when a clot is generated, the pin is moved with the cup and that is detected by a torsion wire. But that makes the system quite sensitive to movement artifact. So to take these uh, devices with you, it's a little bit uh, tricky and is associated with a lot of artifacts. Here, the, the cup is fixed and the pin is moved, but the pin is stabilized by a ball bearing and detection is not mechanically, that's by a laser light and a mirror and then by a detector. So the system is not sensitive against agitation and, for example, all the uh, viscoelastic testing devices which were in Afghanistan that are all rotams. And also the device has been recently on the Mount Everest and in Bolivia, in the Anden, so there's even a backpack device for the U.S. Army that you can measure during the patient is walking. It should not be the injured patient who has to transport the device. Maybe that would be not so good. Okay. What are the main parameters we use? Um, you have a, a clotting time. That's the time from starting the test, that means recalcification and giving an activator, until you get the first clot, which is defined as 2 millimeters of clot firmness. This time is mainly dependent on the enzymatic coagulation factors, anticoagulants, split products, and I will mention this later on. Tissue factor expression on circulating monocytes. So, we know, for example, if you have a patient on an assist device or on cardiopulmonary bypass, within two hours the monocyte starts to express tissue factor on the surface, and that means that coagulation is not any more localized at the site of injury. Trombine can be generated everywhere, and that can be the first step to DIC. Of course, you cannot detect this in plasmatic tests because you centrifugate the blood, you take the lycosides out, and you don't see this effect. The next part is that we look at the stability of the clot. So that's a maximum amplitude in TAC or maximum clot firmness in Rotam. That tells you how stable is the clot. So it's mainly dependent on platelets, fibrinogen, factor 13 for cross-linking, and it's, um, it's uh, influenced by colloids. So if you give colloids like uh, dextrain or starch or gelatin, that impairs cross-linking of the uh, fibrin network and reduces clot firmness. And finally, you see if the clot is stable over the time or you have any fibrolysis. Since this takes about 25 minutes, and we don't want to wait 25 minutes, we more and more use uh, early parameters of clot firmness. That's amplitude five minutes after clotting time or 10 minutes after clotting time. Unfortunately in the U.S., U.S. is the only country in the world where up to now only A10 is approved because in the U.S. each parameter must be FDA approved. The rest of the world is working with A5, but I hope that next year also A5 uh, will be FDA approved. Uh, Of course the question was, is that reliable that we use these early parameters? So, does they really uh, reproducible predict maximum amplitude? So, for that, we did a small pilot study in 14,000 uh, measurements and looked at the correlation. So, we have here the correlation of A5 to maximum clot firms for all the different tests XTEM, UPTEM, FIPTEM, INTEM. I will explain later on. What's the difference? But you see the correlation is between 0.93 and 0.95, and for A10, it's always 0.96. So that's a quite good correlation. And if we look at the graph, you see that nearly all the uh, measurements are on one line. You see here about 20 outliers, but that's 20 outliers and 3,500 measurements, so that's not too bad. so that's correlation to from A5 in FIPTEM to MCF, that's A10 to MCF. So overall quite good correlation. Um, and the interesting point is uh, that the difference is always the same. That are the four tests which we use in most of the patients. There are also two other tests. That's the so-called XTEM test. So as I told you, all the tests, for all the tests, we use citrated blood. So you need a recalcification, and the activator here is tissue factor. So that is a physiologic activator of coagulation in our system. So we have an injury, and uh, um, the endothelium is damaged, then the tissue factor, which is in the subendothelium, activates coagulation. Also in these tests is the heparin inhibitor. So therefore, for example, in cardiac surgery, we can use these tests already during bypass for diagnosis. Uh, because we can eliminate the heparin effect here. And the second test, the so called Fiptem, uh, it's the same activation, but it contains cytosolazine D. That's a very strong blocker inhibitor of platelet function. So we see here only the fibrin clot. And when we compare both tests, we can see if a reduction of clot firmness here is due to a low fibrinogen, or if that is normal, it must be a reduction of the platelets. What you see here in the so-called intem test, uh, oh, I come back to this later. The intem test is intrinsic activation with allergic acid. It has not an heparin inhibitor inside because we want to see heparin effects. So you see a flat line here, and that is because that is an analysis during bypass. There's a third extrinsic activated test, the so-called Uptem test. It contains a protein or tranexamic acid. So we can also already check what would be the effect of an antithypolytic drug in the system. And we have a so-called heptam test, that's intrinsic activation with heparinase, so we can see if this uh, flat line or prolongation is due to heparin, because if it's eliminated here, we can see that's a heparin effect. There's a sixth test, because, but, but this is not already uh, FDA-approved, also is only available in Europe, It's so-called ECATEM acarine-based test, that is for monitoring of direct thrombin inhibitors. So more and more, I think they are used also at the ICU, agatoban, Bivaluridine, also orally at dabigatran, so we can then also monitor these drugs, detect them if a patient comes to an emergency room, or if you have a patient with HIT, will we, de- will we um, uh, anticoagulate the patient with agatoban or bivaluridine, we can directly monitor these drugs. Just to make it a little bit easier, uh, how you use these combination of tests. Of course it would be easier to only have one test, but the diagnostic performance is not the same. So that's a paper uh, published also in anesthesiology in, I think it was 2011, yeah? That's a group from uh, uh, Ahu's, uh, hematologists and cardiac anesthetists. um, And they just compared what is the information you get if you only have one test Let's a kaolin-based test or this panel of tests. Here you see normal ranges, and just an example here. Uh, both traces here look quite similar, so it's not so easy to say if this reduced clot firmness is due to a dilution, so low fibrinogen, or due to a thrombocytopenia. If we use a combination of tests, XTEM and FIPTEM here it's quite easy to see that the FIPTEM is significantly reduced here. So reduced clot firmness in this case is due to a fibrinogen deficiency, so the right intervention would be, in Germany would give fibrinogen concentrate, or here you can give cryoprecipitate. On the right side, FIPTEM is normal, so reduced clot firmness is due to a thrombocytopenia. Now the right intervention would be, to give a platelet concentrate. So that is quite easily to differentiate. Hyperfambolysis usually is not difficult to see, but there are sometimes borderline cases. So uh, another uh, reason for uh, slightly reduced uh, clot stability can also be effective 13 deficiency or just platelet-mediated clot retraction. So with the Uptem test, we can see what will be the effect of an antiphobolytic drug. Does that solve the problem or not? And finally, if we have a prolongation of the clotting time, of course, that can also have different reasons. That can be a heparin effect, that can be a deficiency of factors of the intrinsic pathway, like a hemophilia A or B, or that can be a deficiency of factors from the extrinsic pathway that are mainly the vitamin K-dependent factors, for example, due to oral anticoagulation for therapeutic intervention, it's important to know what is the reason. So when we yet are now uh, again looking at the combination of tests, if, for example, we have a prolongation of the uh, intem clotting time, but it's normalized in the heptem where we have heparinase inside, we are sure that's a heparin effect. So in this case, we would give protamine. If heptem is even longer than intem, then we have already an overdose of protamine because protamine itself has then also an anticoagulative effect. So, what we quite often have seen before, we uh, do our antagonization of heparin with protamine. ACT is still prolonged, so we give more protamine. It gets worse and worse because ACT just tells you there's a problem with thrombin generation, but not if it's an overdose or underdose of uh, protamine. The next point is if we only see a prolongation of the clotting time in the extrinsic activated test, that for us is an indication to give PCC. So um, the license for PCC is different in U.S. and in Europe. So we have the old three-factor PCCs, which are only licensed for hemophilia B. That would be not an indication in, in Europe because then we give factor IX concentrate. Now we have also four-factor PCCs, carcentra, but that is only licensed in the US up to now for warfarin reversal, and the indication for PCCs in Europe is any kind of vitamin K-dependent factor deficiency. That can be a cirrhosis, that can be bleeding, that can be warfarin. We only have to show that vitamin K-dependent factors are missing, and that's an indication to substitute them. And finally, if uh, the intrinsic uh, clotting time is prolonged and not affected by heparinase, we know that factors from the intrinsic pathway are missing, and that, for us, finally, is an indication to give fresh frozen plasma. So, finally, we'll see that the, the, the ratio that we give fresh frozen plasma is much lower than, um, for example, in the U.S. The question is, quite often, does these point-of-care uh, tests correlate well with standard lab tests. And I can tell you for the clotting times, PT, PTT, the correlation is not very good, and that has some reasons. For example, PT, um, you don't see tissue factor expression on circulating cells. So we have sometimes short clotting times in the whole blood test due to tissue factor expression on cells and a prolonged clotting time in a PT. You just have to know what's the reason for that. For fibrinogen plate, that correlation is quite good. Uh, so you see here that is uh, X10A5, uh, clot firms and plate that count. So correlation is quite okay. That's for A5. You can also uh, use it for A10. So, of course, the values are different, but correlation is good. That is for fibrinogen. Here again, R value of 0.87. A quite good correlation to A5 and also to A10. The correlation gets even better if we only look at the plated part of the clot firmness. So we just um, take X and Fiptem and we uh, reduce the clot firmus by the Fiptem. Then we look at only at the uh, clot firmness mediated by platelets, and then the correlation is even better than just using. Uh, the extrem clot firmness. The point is, and it looks a little bit complex at the first view. Maybe this graph. Usually, we know that you need about 45 millimeters of um, clot firmness to stop a bleeding. Then the clot is strong enough to close the hole in the vessel. What you have here, that are the conventional uh, plate that count. Here is the fibrinogen content. Here are the corresponding values in the FIPTEM and in the XTEM test. And the question is quite often how many clot firms in FIPTEM or in XTEM we need to stop bleeding. But that is, uh, you can a little bit play around with this system. So here you have always 45 to 44 millimeters, but you can produce the same clot stability with, for example, 100,000 platelets combined with a fibrinogen level of 2.5, or what we quite often do in liver transplant, we tolerate even 25,000 platelets, but then we need a higher fibrinogen level. So you can compensate and play around with clot firms by fibrinogen or platelets. So it depends on the availability and what is the risk for the patient. So we know giving platelets during liver transplantation has a significant impact on mortality, so it's not the best choice. Also, if you have a patient in cardiac surgery which has just maybe one month ago got a drug-eluting stent, to give them a lot of platelets have a high risk of stent thrombosis. Then we just shift to more fibrinogen. So what we do is more or less using a therapeutic window which means we have uh, several parameters, that is, uh, plated function allies, we talk about this later on, impedance agometry. so we know if we adjust the patient in this area, we can avoid stent thrombosis, but also avoid bleeding. We can also use here the extant clot firmness, so overall clot firmness. We can look at the FIPTEM for the fibrin part, and we can look at the clotting times. And if we take these parameters together, we can adjust the patient in the area to stop bleeding and avoid uh, complications uh, like thrombosis. From a theoretic point of view, sounds good, so we have to see if that really works in clinical practice. The principle of our management is based on, we call it a pyramid of therapy. Of course it starts with surgical hemostasis. If there are big holes in the vessel, it doesn't make sense to give factor concentrate, we need a suture. Then we know that um, things like hypothermia, acidosis, low calcium level, also severe anemia, has a big impact on hemostasis too, so we have to consider this. Then, of course, we should know if the patient is on antiplatelet drugs or anticoagulants. We know that hyperphabolitis is important, not only in trauma, also in cardiac surgery, in liver transplantation, in postpartum hemorrhage. Then we know if we have dilution. that normally fibrinogen is the first factor, which comes into a critical area. Then we think about the enzymatic factors, then about platelets, and finally, there's a possibility for rescue therapy with factor 7a, which we did the last time in 2006. So the last 1,500 liver transplants and the last 20,000 cardiac procedures and the last 5,000 multiple trauma patients didn't need any factor 7a. So the only indication now is really acquired hemophilia. That's a clear indication, no question. And Then we developed algorithms, which at the first view look a little bit complex. But it's like a flight checklist. So on the left side, you have the the condition. So for example here, a trauma patient with bleeding, and you consider transfusion. That's for me the most important point here, because we don't want to treat the analytic device. We treat a bleeding patient. If there's no bleeding, uh, we don't treat these numbers. So that is the first question. We also know here that, for example, low hemoglobin, uh, 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 high base excess has impact on coagulation. Mm-hmm. Then we go through these conditions, and we will do this also in the in the presentation. And if this is true, that is the right intervention. So it's just for the younger colleagues that they really can go through a flight checklist and see what is the intervention they should do. It always starts with a clinical situation. Then we look first is there a hyperformolysis, so a need for an antiphobolytic drug? The next part is. Do we need to increase clot firmness by platelets or phypronogen? Then we look and we also can calculate the amount we need. Then we look at thrombin generation, so is there indication for PCC, fresh frozen plasma? And then again, clinical reassessment, and if bleeding doesn't stop, of course then also reassessment of um, uh, the thrombolestimetry and uh, impedance agometry. So we go through these algorithms, so we see here that are our, our indications. Uh, we, we discussed this a little uh, earlier that we could show in a paper we just published in Anesthesia and Argesia, that already a reduced clot firmness in A5 or A10 we can use to predict 90% of the fibrolysis which comes later on. So then we can already do our decision early, the reason for this is I think First, if we have lysis, it's reduced clot firmness, but also the other way around, a very weak clot does need only a small amount of plasmin to destroy it. So uh, that works quite well. Also, if we have a flat line in FIPTEM, that means 600 seconds, means 10 minutes without any signal, so all the fibrinogen is destroyed, that's also a very good predictor of fibrinolysis. And finally, in trauma, we know that already 5% lysis is associated with increased mortality. So, we treat trauma patients very early. We treat liver transplant patients very late because the pathophysiology is different. Reason for fibrolysis uh, in liver transplant usually is there's no liver inside. And if the new liver graft works well, it just eliminates fibrolysis without any therapy. We know, of course, in trauma, we have a CRASH 2 study. So In the first three hours, I think it makes sense to give tranexamic acid early, even if you don't detect formalizes. So we would not recommend to wait for the results because that just prolongs the the time. But the interesting part here is, if you give tranexamic acid later than three hours, you increase mortality significantly. So I think timing here is important. So in our institution, usually, Severe trauma is already treated in emergency car with tranexamic acid, but if that was not done and we have problems later on or is coming from a different hospital, we only give tranexamic acid. If that is three hours after injury, if we see hyperformalysis. We know that hyperformalysis is also a marker of severe injury. So uh, that's uh, a publication from Herbert Schochel showing that if you see hyperfibrolase, that predicts a very high mortality. And that is independent if you give tranexamic acid at that time or not. So it's, it's not only that they die because they are bleeding. Here, Fibrinolysis is a symptom of a very severe damage and very severe shock. And, of course, that is not solved just by giving tranexamic acid. That's a publication from uh, Michael Chapman and Ernest Moore's group, uh, and here also is an interesting phenomenon. They could show in the patient population who has 1 to 3% lysis, what's the lowest mortality? If it's higher than 3%, mortality goes up. If it's 0%, mortality goes up too. And that is what we showed in septic patients. Highest mortality is... An inhibition of lysis, because in sepsis we have thrombin generation everywhere. You have this tissue factor expression, monocytes, and if these microaggregates cannot be eliminated, this results in multiple organ failure. And maybe that is the reason. Also, in CRASH II study, you have to give it early, because later on maybe the patient goes from trauma-induced coagulopathy to DIC, and in DIC to give tranexamic acid seems to have more harmful effects than positive effects. That's again, as I told you in the beginning, that we look at early clot firmness to predict lysis later on. That's such a typical case. So that is always 10 minutes. So lysis begins here after 50, 55 minutes. But we see already here that A10 in extem is far below 45 millimeters. So it's here only 11 millimeters. And we can nearly be sure if we see this that we see lysis later on. And here also a flat line in FIP-TEM. So that predicts with a very high uh, um, um, percentage uh, of fibrolysis. And only in the APTEM test, we have an antifibrolytic inside, is prevented. So we can use this combination uh, to make our decision. Uh, much earlier in situations where we are not sure if we should give tranexamic acid or not. The next question is, we look at clot firmness, so do we need fibrinogen or platelets in this patient? If both are reduced, clot firmness in XTEM, here below 45, and in FIPTEM below 10 millimeters, then we know that fibrinogen is the main problem. And we can use, for example, this table or this formula to calculate how much fibrinogen we need. For example, here, if, for, if uh, clot firm is in Fibten would be 8, we want to go to 12, that means 4 millimeter increase. For 4 millimeter increase, we need 25 milligrams per kilogram. That would be, in an 80-kilogram patient, 2 grams of fibrinogen concentrate, or a pack of 10 of cryo. Calculation, I think, has the advantage, first, we don't underdose, it will not stop the bleeding, but because we also not overdose which have a risk of thrombosis and is expensive. It's shown in trauma, here again from uh, Karen Brois' group from Royal London, that trauma-induced coagulopathy is functionally characterized by a reduction of clot firmness. And they use also the A5 value. And if this is below 35 millimeters, it's the best sign that the patient develops a trauma-induced coagulopathy. That's the data from, uh, from Royal London. So when we, for example, look here at these data, if clot firmus was higher than 35 millimeters, you see the patients get one or two units of red blood cells. There's no need for any fresh frozen plasma transfusion in a patient who only needs one to two units of fresh frozen plasma. But if it's below 35, the risk is quite higher that the patient will need a massive transfusion, and then we have to start early with an intervention. So you can use these tests at admission at the hospital to decide to avoid any fresh frozen plasma, because we know, it's also published by John Holcomb, if you give fresh frozen plasma in patients who finally don't need a massive transfusion, you only increase the incidence of complications of multiple organ failure, acute lung injury, uh, so here we should not start fresh frozen plasma, but if clot firm is below 35, the chance is high, so then we need early intervention. If that is fresh frozen plasma or platelets or, or fibrinogen, that's another story. In the second study here from Herbert Schöcher, they used the FIPTEM A10 value, also at admission at the hospital, and here again we see if clot firm is in FIPTEM is below eight millimeters, the chance is quite high that the patient will finally need a massive transfusion. If it's below four millimeters, it's really high. But if it's higher than eight, or in particular higher than 12, the chance is very low. So again, at admission, we can uh, see if there is a need, for example, for intervention with fresh frozen plasma uh, that would be here in this group, or if fresh frozen plasma would even be more harmful for the patient. That's not only true in trauma, that our data from cardiac surgery, and here again a cutoff value of 8 millimeters in FIPTEM, was the best predictor if the patient will have an increased postoperative bleeding rate or not. Coming back again to one case, that's a young lady, 85 years old, uh, getting aortic uh, uh, wave replacement and cabbage surgery after weaning from bypass we checked here uh, with the Rotem analyzer what we see first in TEM and HEPTEM clotting time 206-213 is nearly exactly the same number so no problem from heparin protamine but we see that clot firmness in extem is below 40-31 in FIPTEM is only 2 millimeters so it's quite easy to see That main problem here is a low fibrinogen value. We calculate, so our target here was to go from 2 to 10 millimeters, so 8 millimeter increase. That means we need 50 milligrams per kilogram body weight. That's that's 4 grams of fibrinogen. That would be about 25 units of cryo or 16 units, more than 3 liters of fresh frozen plasma to substitute this amount. You see it's between first measurement and control of the therapies, 34 minutes. Usually I think you wait longer for cryo or for fresh frozen plasma, but here we check again, and you see that we can, not exactly, not of 10 millimeters, but 9 millimeters, so chest could be closed after 30 minutes, patient could be extubated after 2 hours, and I think giving an 85-year-old lady 16 units of fresh frozen plasma would not result in early extubation of this patient. Again, that's a table we published two years ago with our experience uh, how to dose fibrinogen concentrate. In principle, you can also translate this in cryo. Fibrinogen concentrate has about 20 grams per liter. Cryo, of course, it's a variation, it's much higher. So, in mean, about 12.5 grams per liter. So, the volume is a little bit higher but much lower than using fresh frozen plasma, so it's also much more effective. And that is not just our idea. That's a study from uh, Kivan Kakuti from Toronto. They looked uh, what is the correlation between postoperative fibrinogen level in cardiac surgery and um, the p- uh, probability that this patient will need more than five units of red blood cells. So if you have only a fibrinogen level of 0.5 grams per liter, nearly 60% of the patients need more than five units of red blood cells. If you go to one gram per liter, which is in a lot of textbooks, uh, still in about 40% of the patient population, they need more than five units. If you go to two grams per liter, only 13% of the patient population needs a high transfusion rate. So this cut-off value, which is still in a lot of textbooks, is not true for bleeding patients. And we can also go to trauma. That's a study also published this year, and they looked at the same. What is the the fibrinogen level you need to stop bleeding in severely traumatized patients? And that was about 2.3 grams per liter, and that is very difficult to achieve with fresh frozen plasma because it has only 2 to 2.5 grams per liter, so you need cryo or fibrinogen to achieve this goal very quickly, and then you can do it within some minutes. The same group from uh, uh, London also analyzed what is the impact on outcome if we give the patients fibrinogen or cryoprecipitate early, they also use their OTEM analyzer to detect there's a low fibrinogen, and then they substituted fibrinogen. That is the clot firmness in FIBTEM in not severely traumatized patients, so it's 12 to 13. That is at admission only 5 in severely traumatized patients. But here again you see you need about 6 grams per liter fibrinogen concentrate to come back to the baseline or a pack of 30 units cryoprecipitate. So to give 5 or 10 is not really efficient. You keep more or less the level, but you never come back uh, to the baseline. There are some indications where we even go to higher levels that maybe because platelets are not available, or if the patient has a very severe trauma. That was just a, a, a lady which was uh, run over by a truck, very unstable pelvic fracture. In principle, that looks quite normal, but maybe the patient did not know. So the patient needs four units of red blood cells, four units of fresh frozen plasma, and two platelets per hour to keep this level. So we decided to go to a higher fibrinogen level here. You see we go from 8 to 19 millimeter. That was about 4 grams of fibrinogen concentrate. Bleeding stopped within 10 minutes. The patient needed two units of red blood cells in the next 24 hours. And we could stop any uh, vasopressors because the diffuse bleeding from pelvic area was stopped. The next question, do we need platelets? So if again, clot is an is reduced, but FIPTEM is normal, then it's the right indication to give platelets. That's a typical situation here. Clot firmness is not too bad, and we have a very high fibrin clot, again, 19 millimeters. But that is only 22,000 platelets. So here we had some bleeding. After giving one platelet concentrate, and platelet count is still only 48,000, but clot firmness is normal due to a high fibrinogen level. There was no bleeding anymore. and We could do a liver transplant without any more uh, platelet transfusion. Mm -hmm. So again, we can compensate low fibrinogen with higher platelets or high fibrinogen uh, to lower platelets. That's a study uh, not from peruptive setting, that's from hematology and oncology from Weill uh, Cornell in New York. And they looked, what is the best predictor of bleeding? Is it platelet count or it's thromboastymetry? And they come to the conclusion that thromboastymetry, because it looks at function, much better predict, uh, bleeding also in these patient populations than just the platelet count. And as an example, they, they show these three graphs. That's always 14,000, 15,000, 13,000 platelets. So platelet count is nearly exactly the same. But due to a, uh, a different fibrinogen level, overall clot firmness is different. And this clot firmness was a much better predictor if this patient will start to bleed uh, than platelet count alone. However, we know that thrombolastymetry and also thrombolastography, the standard test, cannot detect aspirin clopidogrel. The reason for that is we induce a lot of thrombin generation. Thrombin is the strongest stimulator of platelets, so it's just using the thrombin activating pathway, so it doesn't matter if aerotonic pathway or ADP pathway is blocked. So if we think about uh, antiplatelet drugs, we need something else, then we need impedance agometry, That's not already available in the U.S. It's uh, since November in Europe approved. Then you have a six-channel device, four channels viscoelastic testing, two channels for impedance agometry, and then you can see also these drugs. So that's a uh, uh, stimulation with arodonic acid, so we look at the aspirin effects, ADP, thrombin receptor activating peptides, the overall, Time we need is three minutes incubation, six minutes of measurement. Uh, what we see in the first uh, line, it's a normal platelet function. That's a typical patient with aspirin effect. So you see ADP pathway and thrombin pathway is completely normal. The next one, it's a clopidogrel effect, and you see here, trap test is always normal. That is what we are looking for in thrombolastometry and graphy. So uh, we cannot see it in in these patients. That's dual antiplatelet therapy. So pathway and ADP pathway is blocked. That can be a GP2B3A receptor antagonist, so it blocks all the pathways or the final pathway. But it can also be a severe platelet dysfunction. So if you run a bypass six to eight hours, there are some platelets, but they are just running around. They don't do anything anymore. Or it can be a severe thrombocytopenia. And we can also have the opposite. It's a hyper-reactivity, like a sticky platelet syndrome. So then we see that the platelets even work more than they should do. What we also know, and that's published also here from a group from San Francisco using impedance agometry, that at admission at hospital, we already see a platelet dysfunction, not in, in the range we have with antiplatelet drugs, uh, but a, a, a small reduction of platelet function with a normal platelet count, but this is already very predictive for the outcome of the patients. So if um, the, the pathway using TRAP or also using atheronic acid uh, in a le- lesser uh, extent for ADP is reduced, we see that these patients have a very high uh, uh, mortality rate. The question is, does that mean we should give platelets or not? I think at that time point we don't know because that can mean um, reduced platelet function, resulting more bleeding, but it can also mean that that just show uh, a severe damage and also um, a severe activation of uh, inflammation, and to give platelets maybe giving oil on the fire. So at that time point, we only know it's a prognostic marker. We need more data to decide what's the best intervention at that time point. Next point is looking at thrombin generation, so prolongation of clotting time, the extrinsic activated test for us is an indication to give PCC. Uh, In the U.S. it would be an indication to give fresh frozen plasma to these patients. So again, here uh, an example is a motorbike accident. The patient comes to the emergency room, he has an open leg fracture or quite severe bleeding from this open leg fracture. Um, So when we look at clot firmness, that is quite normal. Also, FIPTEM is okay with 13 millimeters, but clotting time should not be longer than 80 seconds. It's nearly 120. That shows there's something wrong in the extrinsic pathway. Um, uh, medical history was a little bit difficult because the colleague who was in the field already intubated the patient, so we could ask all questions, but we didn't get any answer. But when we made these analyses, that did sh- show us that this patient was on Wafarin, So we give this patient 2,000 units of PCC. Uh, That we get one hour later. INR corrected from 2.6 to 1.7. Quick values of the activity of the factors from 27 to 44. We start surgery within 19 minutes. That might be for open leg fracture not so important, but if that is an intercellular hemorrhage, I think it's important to stop uh, these coagulopathy within 20 minutes and that we also can start then, for example, neurosurgery within half an hour without any increased risk of bleeding. The next point is if extrinsic pathway is okay, but we have a prolongation of the intrinsic pathway, we check if that is a heparin effect. If that is true, of course, we give protamine. If not, we give fresh frozen plasma. There's also an example like this. So we see here intrinsic activation, prolongation of the clotting time, Clot growth is very slowly, but we do a heptam test. Uh, We see that's normalized. This patient never gets heparin. That's a a uh, six-month-year-old girl with liver transplantation. And we know when you have a reperfusion of the liver graft, heparin is washed out from the liver graft. So we see this quite often. That is a short-acting effect. So if there's no bleeding, we just observe if there's bleeding we give a small dose of protamine, And finally, we check if there's ongoing bleeding. If so, we have to rerun the algorithm. If not, everything is fine. Just to show you the dynamic in one uh, additional case, that's a patient with a, a severe postpartum hemorrhage. That was a time point where we were activated from the obstetric department. Of course, first we had also a lot of things to do: so stabilize the patient, run the first xTEM and inTEM test, uh, xTEM and fibrTEM test. Clot firmness is not too bad uh, if you look at the xTEM, but here in fibrTEM we have only an A10 value of four millimeters. And if you keep in mind that at the end of pregnancy the normal range for fibrinogen is twice higher than normal, it's three to six grams per liter. That is a very low level for a pregnant woman. If you take a normal blood sample here and send it to the central lab, maybe it takes one hour to get the results back. We did the next analysis one hour later, but the situation changed completely. So to get these results back at this time will not help you in decision-making. Now we see we have a formal and a flat line in FIPTAM. So we know we have a problem with the hyperformolysis and we need fibrinogen. So intervention is to give two grams of tranexamic acid, four grams of fibrinogen. Then we check again. That is 28 minutes after starting the test and eight minutes after detecting. Within the eight minutes, we do the intervention, and then we check again. So we see fibrolysis is gone. Fibrinogen is back again, but the clot is still very weak, and also clotting time here is borderline. We say normally 80 seconds, but here's 78, where we have still a strong bleeding. So the decision is we need more fibrinogen, we need more thrombin generation, and we need also platelets. So we give four grams of fibrinogen again, two units of platelet concentrates, and 1,500 units of PCC. And then bleeding is stopped. We just check again. We see here again, fibrin clot is very strong. The patient gets overall six units of red blood cells, No fresh frozen plasma, and from here to here, it's 69 minutes. In the U.S. trauma studies, the mean time to get the first fresh frozen plasma is 90 minutes. So within 69 minutes, we do three interventions and stop bleeding before usually the first unit of fresh frozen plasma is in the patient. But we talked about a therapeutic window. We want to stop bleeding, but we want to avoid thrombosis. And there are also quite good data if we overtreat the patient, clotting time gets too short or clot firmness is too strong. We have a high risk of thrombosis. So if MCF is higher than 68 millimeters, the chance is very high that the patient develops a thrombosis. So we should avoid this. FIPTAM correlation is not so good, and the reason for that is if FIPTEM is just high but platelets are low, that is not associated with thrombosis. Just to show you again an example, this was a patient from a conventional ICU, and the problem was that this patient nearly every day had a thromboembolic event. That's a conventional lab. INR 3.5, oral anticoagulated, PTT more than 60 seconds, so also in the therapeutic range. So, according to the guidelines, the patient should not have thromboembolic events. Maybe the problem was that the patient did not read the guidelines, so he did not adhere to the guidelines. Then we decided to run a thromboestimetry, and what we now see, I told you, 68 in XTEM, good predictor of thrombosis, 71. 31 in FIPTAM, 24 is a good predictor. So we see quite easily, despite the prolonged clotting times in the plasmatic test, That is a hypercoagulability. Most surprising in the beginning was prolongation of plasmatic clotting times, reduction of clotting times in the whole blood test, normal range 40 to 80. It's 33. So first, our lab colleague says one test must be wrong. But that's not one test wrong. What we see here is tissue factor expression on circulating monocytes. So that shortens the clotting time in the whole blood test but cannot be seen in a plasmatic test. Here, coming to clinical studies we did in the last years, that was the first big study, a before and after study, in 3,865 patients undergoing cardiac surgery. Main results, reduction of transfusion, mainly reduction of fresh frozen plasma to 1.1% of the patient population, 50% 50% reduction in massive transfusion, 50% reduction in re due to bleeding, and about 50% reduction in composite adverse events, including stroke, myocardial infarction, thromboembolism, and uh, pulmonary embolism. So reviewers said, okay, that's a surprise. You use these very effective factor concentrates, you should have more thromboembolic events. So show us the same in a prospective randomized study. So then we used these algorithms in Frankfurt, um, where it was not standard of care at this time. Uh, we only included in this study complex cardiac surgery, and only if there was bleeding after giving protamine, they were randomized to a point-of-care algorithm or the same algorithm from the structure, but using conventional lab results. And then the results here again. So blood transfusion was significantly reduced. Also, coagulation factors were not increased. Because before, the colleagues in Frankfurt sometimes give recommend factor 7a as off-label use. That was nearly this, except one patient eliminated. That are the costs for blood products and factor concentrate. That's the costs for point of care diagnostic, the overall costs. So within 50 patients, we had a cost saving by 70,000 euro uh, or per patient with complex cardiac surgery of 1,400 euro. That's a reduction in massive transfusion from 16 to 2%, recommend factor 7a eliminated, acute renal failure from 20 to 6%, septic complications from 14 to 2%, thromboembolic events from 4 to 0, and if you take L together as composite adverse events from 38 to 8%. That's the results of six-month mortality also significantly reduced. The study was not powered for mortality, so of course we have to be careful with these results, but it was already a significant reduction uh, in six-month mortality. So it also had then uh, impact on the European guidelines, so in particular for cardiac surgery, now in the European guidelines, a strong recommendation to use guided therapy um, in bleeding patients undergoing cardiac surgery, also for the updated European trauma guidelines, viscoelastic testing as a clear indication, and if you think about platelet dysfunction, you also should use um, uh, here impedance agometry. It's just published in August this year a health technology assessment in the UK, and also here they come to the clear conclusion that it's not only effective, it's also cost saving, but. The question is, you cannot always translate this from Europe to U.S., because costs for blood product, costs for factor concentrates are different. So, of course, cost-effectiveness analyzes have to be done in each country, because it might be different. But that it works also in other countries, that's Australia. Using our algorithm in Brisbane, the biggest cardiac surgery in uh, Australia, in Queensland, Uh, They also implemented our algorithm, so red blood cell transfusion, reduced platelets, fresh frozen plasma,
1: overall
0: 39% reduction in blood transfusion or 928,000 Australian dollars within one year cost reduction. Going to North America, not to US, that's uh, Canada, uh, general Toronto, They also did a pilot study over half of a year implementing our algorithms. Sorry, go once back again. So you see also red blood cells from 52 to 41%, plate that's reduced, plasma from 34 to 14%. Re-exploration rates reduced, large volume transfusion reduced, uh, recommand factor 7A eliminated, and acute kidney injury from about 9% to 5%. And they also looked at the costs, sorry. That was for General Toronto in one year, 1.7 million Canadian dollar cost reduction. Going once back to trauma, and that's the last study I want to show you. That's a before and after study, again, in our institution, implementing point of care testing and such an algorithm in trauma. The data were not analyzed by ourselves. In Germany, all trauma centers give the data to the German Trauma Register, and they do a central analysis. But just as a a first uh, idea here, 45% reduction in in in-hospital mortality within one year, 50% reduction in 24 hours mortality, and again, 45% reduction in multiple organ failure. Uh, Of course, we have to show this again in a prospective randomized study but in, prin- so in principle, we see the same as in cardiac surgery. OK, that's the last slide. I think uh, we should not just line back. We have to be active in bleeding management. Uh, I think that uh, point-of-care diagnostic combining thrombolastometry and impedance agometry can be very helpful to guide therapy. And the main target is to stop bleeding as quick as possible. So usually I say we don't have massive transfusion protocols. We have massive transfusion avoiding protocols to stop bleeding before we come in the area of massive transfusion. But on the same uh, time, we have to be careful not to induce more thrombembolic complications to reduce thrombembolic events. And I think that is only possible with a calculated uh, therapy. And finally, it should be for the benefit of our patients, and thank you for attention. That that's a, a very yeah, that's a very very important point. So I always say a tool with a a, a fool with a tool is a fool. So just to have a device, and um, or to buy a device, but you don't have knowledge how to use it will not change anything. So um, of course that does not happen, this change within uh, some days. And when we started in 1999, yeah, even we don't have a lot of knowledge, so we had a long learning curve in the first years. And we started in liver transplants, and at that time on the liver transplant team that were about six anesthetists, six nurses, were trained and we're doing this. And then we summarize the experience in these algorithms, which are quite often changed. So if we learn something new, we adapt this. And then more and more persons were trained. Now in our institution, we have 10 rotam devices and four devices for impedance agometry. About 70 people are trained. That includes all people who are working, for example, at cardiac ICU or liver transplant ICU. And it doesn't matter if they're anesthetists, or nurses or cardiac surgeons, everybody who is working at these um, departments are in between trained. The good thing from my point of view is that such a device has also very good, uh, is a didactic tool because it visualizes coagulation. And a lot of us, I think, um, just to have numbers is not so easy. But to see a clot, if this clot is strong or not, you can do a lot even without the exact numbers. But you see if it's stable, if it uh, takes a long time to generate the clot, if it looks stable or not, then you can uh, do your fine-tuning with the numbers. But education is extremely important. But I think that's not only in this field. If you do um, echocardiography, just to put in uh, the probe doesn't help you. If you doesn't know what you see, you will not help. Um, so. Education is really a very, very important part. There are different solutions how to do it. Some centers have it in the lab. We preferred (laughs) to have it in the U.R. because the turnaround time then is extremely short. And, um, yeah, we we educated all these people. If only one is educated, it's a problem. Um, But it's a long learning curve. That's no question. And the main... uh, uh, aim of the algorithms is to reduce these learning curves because then you can use it like a checklist. And as I told you, when we did the study in Frankfurt, they did not use it for before in clinical practice. We give them the algorithm, and after two months, they started with a prospective randomized study. So there, the learning curve was very short because we could transfer the knowledge we had by using these algorithms also to other institutions, and then it works quite quickly. Yeah. I'm going to you down here a little bit about this mm-hmm. very quickly. Mm-hmm. Know, so. Yeah. Uh, maybe first, and that was also one reason why we did also the studies in Australia and in Canada. They didn't use a lot of factor concentrate, so it also works with other preparations like cryo. Um, the problem of cryo I think quite often is the availability or the, the time you get it is much higher and the patient continues to bleed in this time. Um, with the factor concentrate, it's uh, as vector calculated because you have a more or less guaranteed content and it's quickly available which means we store it in the operation theater. We open the fridge, add water, inject. So that's quite quickly. Uh, the disadvantage is, I think, if you don't know where you are and where you go, you will not be successful or maybe even harm the patients because you over-treat or just give the wrong drug. Um, our experience with PCC, if we exactly know what to do, is that the risk of thromboembolic events is very low. If you compare it to uh, giving recommend factor 7a with four-factor PCCs overall in the literature about 15 cases of thrombosis compared to 260 with recommend factor 7a. But of course, not every case will be published. So even from these 15, a lot of cases are from our studies because if we see thrombosis, we report it as a potential uh, complication. So these 15 is not that you show that is exactly uh, PCC, but it may be associated. The most dangerous situation is you have tissue factor expression on circulating cells, a reduction of clotting time, and giving PCC, because you start thrombin generation everywhere. And that makes it quite safe, looking at the whole blood test, because we I can identify these patients and they will never get PCC or recommend factor 7a. The difference between three-factor and four-factor, I can only tell you from a theoretic point of view because we never use three-factor PCCs uh, in Germany. But the experience with fibrinogen and uh, four-factor PCCs is quite high, so they are licensed over 20 years in Germany for these indications, and now for about one year in the U.S. Um, From a theoretic point of view, the four-factor PCCs, Um, have the vitamin K-dependent factors, so 2, 7, 9, and 10 in a very good balance. In the three-factor PCCs, you have very low amounts of factor 7. I'm not sure if that is really a problem for efficiency because the most important factor here is factor 2. From all the other factors, from the enzymes, you need about 20 to 25%. But proton bean has a linear correlation to thrombin generation, which is not very difficult to understand. If there's no proton bean, you cannot generate thrombin. And therefore, sometimes recombin factor 7a cannot work because you, you activate factors, but if there's no fibrillation or no proton bean, there's no clot. And our experience was when we first normalized proton bean, I never seen a case where we need recombin factor 7a in this indication. The other point, safety. And I think maybe there is a big difference in regard to safety because the four-factor PCCs also have very high contents of protein C and S, which is also vitamin K dependent. So even we keep the balance between anti- and procoagulants. That seems to be um, very important in warfarin reversal, so I think it's more safe for this indication. Also in cirrhotic patients where we know that thrombin generation is not really reduced. If you do endogenous thrombin potential at thrombomodulin, which is important to activate protein C pathway, a cirrhotic patient has the same thrombin generation as a non-cirrhotic patient. And therefore they have with an increased INR uh, portal vein thrombosis. So here we, we would be very careful with PCCs. It's not that we give every second patient PCC. We are talking about uh, maybe 5 to 7% of the patient population who needs PCC. Um, but if we see the indication that the initiation phase is significantly prolonged, then it works very well. And the second point is we never, if I would use INR as, an, as a marker, we never correct to 1. Our target is 1.5 to 1.8 which is completely enough, but then you have to know where you are, where you want to go. And then I think these drugs are very safe. But um, without any monitoring, the risk is high. When you talk about costs, we did last year um, um, a pilot in the University of Virginia, uh, half a year reduced the cost in cardiac surgery for recombinant factor 7a by half a million dollars. So I think... uh, you can reduce, I would call it misuse, if that is fresh frozen plasma that's or uh, recommend factor 7a, uh, because you identify the patients who really need the intervention, and you can use the money you have to really treat the patients who need it and avoid everything uh, where it's not needed. Yeah, first, I think the, the view at the surgical field is very important. So all the, our algorithms start with the clinical situation. If there's no bleeding, uh, usually in between you don't measure. We only measure if there's bleeding. Uh, in the beginning, it's quite good maybe for a certain time to measure more or less every patient to, to see what, how it looks like if there's a non-bleeding patient and a bleeding patient. But maybe after some time you say, okay, you get the results very quick, so you don't have to measure in advance. Um, in the prospective randomized study, we had also a specific algorithm at the ICU because you miss <laughs> that you can't see at the field. You can only see what is coming out in the drainage. Um, also, we have different algorithms for the liver patients because the cutoff valves are not the same. We can tolerate a lower uh, clot firmness, usually in these patients, and also we are much more restrictive in uh, thrombin generation. We tolerate some fibrinolysis when it's not associated with bleeding in the anapathetic phase because if the organ works well after reperfusion, it's just gone. Um, the point is, you, you mentioned uh, gastrointestinal bleeding. Uh, INR is not a very good predictor for that. The highest predictor is portal hypertension. To give fresh frozen plasma is the best way to increase bleeding and GI bleeding because what you always do in a liver cirrhotic patient, you increase uh, central venous pressure, you increase portal hypertension, and usually they bleed more. So um, also our hepatologists just started to use thrombolastometry. If that is normal, they don't do any intervention before, for example, liver biopsy. If it to the 20,000, these 20,000 works well, it's fine. Uh, If INR is high but clotting time is normal, they don't do an intervention. There was no increase in bleeding, reduction in thrombembolic events, and about a saving of 80% of the intervention they did before. Um, so uh, in particular, these volume overload, uh, I think it's important, because I would say one to two units of fresh frozen plasma, is just volume therapy. There's no change in activity. One unit of fresh frozen plasma increased the activity by about 2%. So you go maybe from 17 to 19%. That's in the range of your uh, mistakes you do in the lab. If you want to change something, you need 10 to 15 milliliters per kilogram body weight. But then you have volume overload. And you dilute the red blood cells. That's also something we see in cardiac surgery. At at the time we use fresh frozen plasma, you have some dilution. You give red blood cells, but the patient has a volume overload, and the next day, hemoglobin level is 15. So it's overtreated. If we use factor concentrates, we don't give volume. So nowadays, we have a goal-directed volume therapy and a goal-directed coagulation therapy, but there is no connection. If we give volume, want to give volume, we give volume. If we want to increase coagulation, we increase coagulation. But we don't have to give liters of fresh frozen plasma to have some effect on, on coagulation, but then they have a right ventricular failure and, and pro- lung problems. Uh, so, to separate this, I think it's, it's beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm? yeah. The point is, in particular, when we look at trauma, um, uh, we did something which was not very clever years ago uh, because we had the physicians in the field. I think years ago we give much too much volume pre-hospital, so we diluted our patients. The concept now has changed. Of course, tolerating for a certain time a low blood pressure, stopping the bleeding within 30 minutes, and giving the volume only once. At the time where we also use something like one-to-one-to-one, and if you look at the study from Ernest Moore and Gonzalez, the time... To correct cochleopathy with one-to-one one is in mean 14.8 hours. So you see in one case that was quite a long time, 69 minutes. So we give the volume only once. And then it doesn't matter if you give crystalloids or some colloids. Um, the overall amount of volume we need is uh, much lower than running behind a certain time. Yeah, no, I just talked with both with uh, uh, Brian Cotton and uh, uh, all these people yesterday in Philadelphia because they had a consensus conference. Uh, I think at one point you said anti-inflammatory effect. That's very important. I I don't believe that the effect in CRASH two has uh, a lot to do with anti effects. effect because this patient population, 50 percent didn't get any uh, transfusion. So, we have to think that it's an anti-inflammatory effect. It has an effect on plated function. So, uh, but that is for all the drugs, uh, only because we say that's an antipholytic drug. It has other effects. Uh, like, uh, there are a lot of drugs we don't call an anti drug, but they have anti effects. I think that we have to consider all the time. It's also not that I want to say that one-to-one is, is not uh, a concept which you can use. The point is, and even in Europe, the centers who use it, sometimes say, oh, the trauma comes in, and we have to treat them as one-to-one-to-one. I had a discussion uh, last year with John Holcomb, and I said, okay, the most important point is to know, has this patient a high risk that he needs a massive transfusion or not? Because, yes, because all the data which show beneficial effect one-to-one-to-one is only in the patient population who, in the end, needs a massive transfusion. Um, and uh, I said, yeah, maybe that's true for 5% of a trauma patient. He said, I disagree. It's only true for 2% of a trauma population. So having a marker at admission who quite good gives you the information I have to treat aggressively, however I do it, or to say, okay, we don't have to give any Hemostatic uh, drug or blood product. I think that is a first important uh, information. Uh, whatever kind of intervention you you are finally doing, so that I think it's it's an important point. Then you um, mention taught plasma. Well, what kind of plasma you use? You use always AB or you use? Yeah. Um, but. Yeah, I think when we look at the literature for thought, not for thought plasma, for ABO-compatible but not identical plasma, we can use a study from Kenji Nabar and John Holcomb, giving more than 6 units of AB plasma in, for example, a zero patient, increase the incidence of sepsis and RDS to 70% of the patient population. So that, I think, is a high risk. There's another study from, um, from Sweden, from Karolinska. They looked at 86,000 patients. Same number of fresh frozen plasma. One hand ABO identical, the other ABO compatible. 15% more mortality. So we save 1.4% with CRASH-2, but we kill 10 times more with ABO compatible plasma. So what we always do, we stopped to give ABO compatible plasma. So our blood banks needs three minutes to measure the blood group. We have a guarantee of five minutes. And I think you can always wait five minutes. So if I would use plasma, I would stop ABO compatible plasma because I think that's really harmful. And U.S. studies and other studies show that. Of course, that makes the problem if you have to pre tour all blood groups. It's also from an economic point of view. But the question is, to save money, but to accept 15% more mortality, I, it's questionable. The other problem, too, is yeah. the blood bank is a, a bus transfer and a, a yeah. cab ride away from yeah. Us here. So yeah. So that is the just problem. the advantage we have with the factor concentrates. We don't have to take care for that, because there are no uh, blood group antigens and antibodies in the factor concentrates. So it doesn't matter. Um, but uh, it's just something we discussed also with the uh, National Institute of Health to see. I think we need more information if that is really true. Uh, that, but if this could be confirmed, I would recommend not to use ABO-compatible plasma. Yeah, uh, of course, is there, um, damage of the glycocalyx, damage of endothelium is very important, and we don't have a good tool to monitor that. Uh, we can only use markers uh, that thrombomodulin goes up, or, or a lot of other markers. I think that's uh, the most important uh, organ of hemostasis, endothelium. Um, from my personal point of view, it's questionable if fresh frozen plasma has some protective effects. That are mainly studies also from, from John Holcomb's group, but in, in cell cultures. So to remove all plasma is definitely uh, not good for endothelial cells, but that doesn't mean uh, that giving plasma has the opposite effect. And I asked him uh, when I had a lecture at Transfuse in Phoenix, and he also had a lecture, and I said, for me it's a question, If fresh frozen plasma would be protective, then it's not easy for me to understand why you get 70% multiple organ failure and 70% lung injury. It should be the opposite. Um, What is shown in some studies about glycocalyx, that it seems to be that antithrombin is the main protector of the glycocalyx. But then I would prefer to give antithrombin. Here again, we are on the economic uh, point, I think 500 units or 1,000 units of antithrombin, which I think is only used for heparin resistance, which we use since 20 years for that, is about $800, so it's 50 euro. uh, So antithrombin we can use like water, more or less, uh, because it's cheaper than starch solution. Uh, That doesn't mean that we always give antithrombin, but if we see something like also then these, Tissue factor expression on cell, that might be a good indication to improve early the anticoagulation system. So, a lot of things to learn, that's no question, and a lot of ways to do. There's not only one right way, and um, where well we can learn from each other. <laughs>